Psalm 25, a psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness' sake. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testament. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquities, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me, and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain, and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies. For they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for David's example to turn to you, to trust you, to cast all of his cares upon you. And Lord, what a lesson for us. As there are so many things we can turn our attention to when trouble is upon us. So Lord, teach us, as David even says in the text, to turn to you, that we might hear your voice, we might have clarity when it comes to your ways, your will, and uh, Lord, that you might direct our path. And Lord, we also uh, just lift up Lucy and we pray that you would guard her life, Lord, when she goes into surgery and the surgery would be a success and that she would be back with us on her feet and just being a little girl. Pray that you would be with her mom. And she's probably far more worried than Lucy is. And so I pray that you would just grant her courage and strength, Lord, to trust you. Isaac as well, and even as he is in pain tonight with his knee and concerned that he might have done damage to the surgery site, just pray that you'd be with Isaac and um, that all of his fears, Lord, would come to nothing. And Lord, we lift up uh, Linda to you. We're thankful, Lord, that she's, she's yours. She's your daughter. And uh, we're sorry that she has to endure all of these things before she meets with you. Um, sadly, it seems to be a part of life. But Lord, we pray that you would um, keep her pain at a minimum and uh, that you would hasten, Lord, uh, her suffering to where she's finished. Finish her race, Lord, and bring her to yourself in peace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Please be seated. So Psalm 25, uh, of course, it's uh, characteristic of many of uh, David's other uh, psalms, but there's some unique, I think, features within it that are useful to us, especially when we uh, encounter trouble in our lives. Again, like many of the psalms, there's no 
historical context to attach it to, but David does suggest that um, there's an issue of treason, uh, perhaps conspiracy, uh, embedded in the text. Uh, it doesn't help us necessarily locate where it might be in, in First or Second Samuel, uh, what exactly he was talking about, because um, it, it happened more than once, <clears throat> and so we just don't know. <clears throat> the overarching theme uh, as, is on the, the screen there, the ways of the Lord, uh, but it all has to do with um, acquiring or being taught the ways of the Lord in a state of desperation. Whatever is going on with David, he feels uh, desperate. He feels maybe cornered, uh, but he needs the Lord to, to speak to him. And so it comes up repeatedly. Uh, he talks about uh, your ways, your paths, verse 4, your truth, your justice, um, verse 5 and 9, your secret, verse 14, your covenant, verse 14. And David, in his pleading, he uses language like, to, you know, he pleads with the Lord to show him, to teach him, to lead him. He says, remember me, pardon me, turn to me, have mercy on me. Um, you know, uh, to, to, he says, bring me to you, to look on me, uh, look upon my enemies, you know, consider the, the, the danger that I am in. He says, there are many. He says, to keep my soul and to deliver me. And then David talks about how the Lord in his goodness responds and so therefore, God uh, can be trusted. He says we're to wait for him. And God is good to the humble sinner. He's good to the humble in general, uh, to those who keep his covenant, who fear the Lord, who have their eyes on the Lord. He says God is merciful to those who are desolate, afflicted, distressed, and those who have integrity and are upright. So really strong, powerful language. Let's, <clears throat> let's look at it more closely. David begins, he says, to you, Lord, I lift up my soul. So the psalm, in a, in a kind of a way, it begins with an offering, but not like those in the temple. There's no sacrifice here. It's more like uh, what we would think of as in Romans chapter 12, more of a, a new covenant kind of sacrifice, no blood offering. But David here, in, in the facing his troubles, he just, he just offers his life, uh, his soul to the Lord, just like a burnt offering. And the idea behind a burnt offering is that everything that goes on the altar goes up in smoke uh, because what is happening, the idea there is that the, the worship, the dedication, which is a burnt offering, uh, is, goes from the altar to the Lord. It goes from here into heaven as uh, we read constantly through Leviticus as a sweet-smelling aroma, that dedication offering. And uh, so David doesn't just declare that his life belongs to the Lord. He's just really just handing his life over to God in total dependence. Here's my life. Take it. Use it for your purposes. And by the way, it's in big trouble. So take it and protect it. He says, oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. So we have an offering, and now we have a petition. Here's my life, now here's my prayer. So once again, of course, as many of the, the themes of the Psalms, uh, David's enemies have come against him, and so he, as usual, he goes to the Lord, he cries out to him, he waits upon him in faith, he says. Uh, we might say rather than being hasty, and he says those who do that, he says, will not be put to shame. How many guys are... Um, we might say you're reactionary rather than responding. Reacting is like, you know, 
um, one time we were at some friend's house and the, the kids were playing tag around the house. And so um, somebody decided to hide around the corner <clears throat> and wait for the kids to come around and they jumped out in front of them. Well, it happened to be Samuel. And so Samuel reacted and punched him in the nose. That's a reaction. But a response is something where you step back and you think it's calculated. And here David is talking about, I believe, throughout the psalm is, is, okay, trouble's on the horizon. I don't want to just react. I want to take it to the Lord so that I can, I can respond properly. I don't want to just immediately strike. Maybe he has something different, his plans. So, and David says that uh, shame does not belong to those who wait on the Lord, but shame belongs to those who would act um, treacherously. They would behave deceitfully or unfaithfully. And so here we come to what is perhaps embedded in the text, the idea of, we might say, treason, a conspiracy within. Um, This enemy probably is not a foreign invader, but someone within this kingdom, a conspirator, which is far worse. It's far worse. I would rather have an enemy from without than have somebody in this room turn on me. Okay. And uh, infidelity among friends or comrades is the most painful. <clears throat> and the sad reality is, is that we get both, don't we? Um, Calvary Chapel's been here, uh, well, I've been here at this church for 15 years, and we've had both. And um, when, it, when attacks come from without, uh, it, it's kind of like, you know, you brush it off, you expect it. But when it comes from within, it hurts here. And, uh, but we should expect it too. And perhaps you remember when Paul was speaking to the elders of Ephesus. It was his last time that he was going to have a chance to speak with them. And he says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, that is, from without, not sparing the flock, but also from among yourselves. Men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. He says, "Therefore Therefore watch, Remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears, Acts 20, 29 through 31. I think that the tears is related to the latter warning. Uh, Those that, I don't think Paul ever in the New Testament shed any tears about the enemies from without. Uh, But when it was enemies from within, it's just so, it's heartbreaking. And of course, Paul had mentioned this to the Ephesians. I'm sure that he had that same word for all of the churches. And so the reality is for us, that we must be watchful, we have to be vigilant, to be on our guard for trouble from both what may come in from the world, and it's coming, uh, and from what may happen inside here. I think the hard thing also about it coming from within is we, it, it catches us off guard because we don't want it to be true. We, um, we're supposed to be people of love, and love doesn't... Um, you know, love hopes all things. Uh, it's, it's in this context here that we endeavor to error on the side of grace. <clears throat> and in doing that, we can allow things to go too far, perhaps, or we can overlook things that we, we ought not to. And uh, it can be bad. So sometimes it's a shock. It's often, it's always heartbreaking. Uh, and it's, again, it's nothing new. Uh, David and Paul both knew this well, as did our Lord with Judas. Uh, Paul uh, Paul had Hymenaeus, Alexander, and Philetus, all traitors to him in the faith. David, of course, had Absalom and Sheba. At least those are the two big ones. And, but he always had people from within the kingdom 
you know, picking at him and criticizing him and, and just treating him terrible. And so it's all over the place. But as David says, the shame belongs to them, to the treacherous ones. Yeah. So what do we do about it? <clears throat> what do we do about it? What did David do about it? He says, show me your ways, O Lord. And here's his, his way of responding. He's trying to be calculated. He says, teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. It's interesting he says your truth. I think it's interesting because today everybody's into their truth. They're into my lived experience. Uh, it's about the way I perceive reality. This is my reality. This is my truth. But David, we might be saying it in this here, his effort is to push away any idea of what he might think is his truth because his truth will probably not end well. Okay? But he wants God's truth, which is real truth. He says, lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. So turning to the Lord in trouble so that we can hear from him. Yeah. David, I think, I believe that he did this because he believed in a truth that is just about completely forgotten in, or we might say, among God's people today, which is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. It's interesting that, you know, when you look at a church website, you will get a Typically, you'll get a statement of faith. And most evangelical churches have a very similar statement of faith. They have a statement on the inspiration of the word and uh, their doctrine of God and so forth. But you do see uh, in almost all of them a, a, a statement on that the Bible is inspired. <clears throat> and some of them break it down. But what is most of the time wanting is within that statement of the scriptures is a, a statement on the sufficiency of the Bible sufficiency of God's word, uh, which is not a man-made doctrine, but it's a doctrine that we draw out of the Bible. It's something that is taught to us uh, from the scriptures themselves. So the, the Bible affirms of itself that it's, uh, it's sufficient for all things pertaining to life. So why would anybody believe it, though? <clears throat> well, the world we live in, uh, I think everybody in this room would agree that it belongs to God. He created it, and he actually designed it. He intended for it to be governed by his word. It's, it's the manual. Uh, he, he designed this world to be governed by it. But what, we, what happens, though, is over time, uh, we find that culture begins to govern, uh, you know, like the thinking of a society. Uh, but the world it should not. It should not be governed by culture. It shouldn't be governed by science. Okay? God created the natural world, okay, it's subject to him. Shouldn't be governed by medicine or philosophy or psychology. It definitely shouldn't be governed by a political ideology unless that political ideology is the reign of Christ. And that, of course, will be the prevailing ideology when he comes, uh, but that'll be okay then. And these things that I just mentioned, culture, science, medicine, philosophy, psychology, political ideology, whenever those things are out of step with his word, we always find ruin and chaos every single time, okay? Ruining people's lives and bringing the world that we live in into chaos. And every one of these fields has, in, by and large, has abandoned um, the government of God's word and the whole world is suffering because of it. The whole world is. So God's world was created for him. It was created to be governed by his word. And when you read the, the, David's literature, he knew this. He knew this. And in fact, David 
uh, he is one of the most prolific writers on the sufficiency of the Bible, on God's Word. Not just its inspiration, but its sufficiency. <clears throat> he knew that all the problems in the world and his personal troubles exist, existed because things in the world were out of step with the Scriptures. And so if he was going to have any success in the world, he would need to turn to God's Word to deal with it. And the truth is, nothing has changed from the days of David until the days of now. I think that in regard to the sufficiency of God's word, the only thing that has happened, the change is in us, and we've just made life more complicated. We've just messed things up worse. Um, if we look at the world around us, like issues of race, that's not a, a big issue right now. Or like gender and sexuality, uh, government policy and philosophy war, uh, wherever it is flawed, it's always in conflict with God's word. And, uh, and when we look at our own personal experience in the context of our our friendships, um, our family, church, business, uh, wherever there is a problem, there is always a departure from God's word. <clears throat> and uh, something you can be praying about is been paying attention to the Southern Baptist Convention, and you're like, well, I'm not Baptist. It doesn't matter. Uh, that's the, the extension, the, a part of the body of Christ. And it happens to be the largest uh, evangelical denomination in the world, uh, they put out more missionaries than anybody else does. <clears throat> and in the last couple of years, uh, they have just been struggling with liberal theology, progressive stuff. And uh, I was telling the staff today that um, two men have been nominated uh, for positions of authority. One is the president and one as the, um, for the pastor's conference. Vody Bakum has been nominated for the pastor's conference. And I can't remember the, the gentleman's name that's been nominated for the presidency. But one of the things that came out in their, their joint statement was that the, the church must return to a belief in the sufficiency of Scripture. And that's all I cared about in that entire statement. Because if they bring that to the forefront of the movement, uh, then they will purge it of all the nonsense and they'll be revived again. And the, the Southern Baptists, it's funny, they're the only major denomination that has ever begun to plummet into liberalism and then be revived out of it. It happened, I think, in, in the 90s, early 90s. And I, for one, I long for them to come out of this because we need that strong evangelical voice. Uh, the Southern Baptist, every one of us in here <clears throat> that has walked with Christ for any period of time has been touched by someone that has influenced Western culture that has come out of the Southern Baptist movement. Some of my favorite theologians, uh, Christian philosophers, apologists, um, have come from them. So we should pray for them because we want to we see the body of Christ succeed. Amen? Yeah. So, so as we said, in David's situation, he doesn't react. Uh, he doesn't take his best shot. He doesn't turn to men's wisdom. He turns to the Lord in prayer. It says he waits on the Lord all the day long, <clears throat> seeking his wisdom, which is found in his word. And uh, I haven't been a Christian for... I don't know, it's, it's 20 years a long time, 23 years. Uh, in that time, the word in my experience, as I've seen it in so many other people's experience, it has always proven to be sufficient for all of man's deepest needs, uh, to govern the ethics of every matter, okay, to govern it. And uh, the happiest and the healthiest people I know are always those who consume God's word and they strive to apply it in all matters pertaining to life. The ha always the happiest and healthiest. Peter says this, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. <clears throat> the word knowledge there is key. 
and of Jesus Christ our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Everything, all things pertaining to life and godliness are found in the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and, um, which, of course, we know that we obtain by what resource? The scriptures. That is God's self-revelation to us. So I hope that here at Calvary Chapel we emphasize the necessity, sufficiency, inspiration of the Bible, its authority. You guys hear it all the time, don't you? <clears throat> We're full of it. So David says, Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses. <clears throat> now, if my spell check hadn't highlighted loving kindnesses, I wouldn't have noticed it's plurality. Because you know you read, you just read over stuff super fast. We'll talk about that in a second. But for they are from of old. I love that. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me, remember me for your goodness's sake, O Lord. So the, the petition is interesting. Twice David pleads with God to remember and one time to forget. Remember two things, forget at least one thing. Yeah, or I guess a multitude of things. He says, remember your ancient tender mercies and loving kindnesses. Remember them. He says, do not remember. So he wants him to forget the sins of his youth, <clears throat> which if he's like me, it was many. So a multitude of things. And then he also says, remember me according to your mercies. Now, I'll come back to that in a minute. So David calls upon God confidently, but never presumptuously. Or because of, we might say, of some moral quality that he might perceive in himself. Uh, he goes before the Lord humbly. He's confessing his sins. So not presumptuously, but humbly he's confident. And look again at verse 6. Uh, as we said, David mentions God's mercies and loving kindness. He says, existing from of old. Existing from of old. That is to say, these are the Lord's ancient characteristics. So what does David mean? by all of that. He's saying that you, Lord, have an ancient track record of granting mercy to those who call upon you in humility. You have a resume like no one else's in terms of faithfulness. Those things are from of old. They're ancient. They're ancient. God is known for this, he's saying. The, the biblical record is the history of God's mercies and loving kindness from Adam, who he could have dispatched for his sin, uh, but he covered his sin, all of the men and women, up to the time of David. Just a track record of God being merciful to people. And so he's saying, because of your reputation, I'm crying out to you. Then, as we said, the plurality of mercies and loving kindness. Uh, interesting fact I learned today. Uh, mercy is always plural in Hebrew. I never knew that before. <clears throat> mercy is always plural in the Hebrew text of the Bible. Uh, but he also mentions loving kindness. That's God's love. Here it's plural, and it's not always the case uh, throughout the Old Testament. The plural signifies abundance, abundance. His mercies, uh, his loving kindnesses. It's just something that seems to have no limit when God begins to distribute it. It's, he has a track record of it from ancient times, and when he distributes it, it comes in abundance. Abundant. Isn't that great? Yeah. 
So those who cry out to the Lord in humility will not, not merely experience his love and mercy. They get to enjoy an abundance of it. David says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, or it's like saying because of that, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice and the humble he teaches his way. He teaches sinners. Um, you guys have noticed that he only has sinners to work with, right? So if anything is to be taught, it's going to be taught to sinners. But the point here is that he teaches humble sinners, those who come to him in contrition, confession, and brokenness because of their sin. He always, we know from the scriptures, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then he, he demonstrates here that it's at the humble sinner's disposal is God's ways, is God's teaching, his justice. <clears throat> he says, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimony. So the covenant of God, uh, his testimonies. Of course, that's a reference to all that was uh, given to Israel at Mount Sinai, uh, the Ten Commandments, which was the testimony itself. And then all of the law was built out from that moral uh, standard that God gave them, all for the nation of Israel. And he says here that it was through Israel's commitment to the covenant that they got to enjoy God's mercy and truth or faithfulness. The word truth there is often translated as, as faithfulness, okay, of, as fidelity. Now, David may have had Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9 in mind when he said this here. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments, that is, those who keep his covenant, his testimony. So God keeps covenant because he's faithful and he upholds and lives by the truth always and mingled with his faithfulness is always mercy. But in the Hebrew text, it's always plural, mercies. So even if your Bible in, in the Old Testament translates it in the singular, the Hebrew is always plural. Yeah, it's very interesting. I'm going to have to look into it more. I wonder why that's the case. So all of these things, these attributes of God, these characteristics of God, they're experienced by those who are faithful to the covenant, not to those who are flawlessly faithful. How many of us would experience God's faithfulness if we were flawlessly faithful? Well, David for certain would not because his resume is in the scriptures for us. But mingled in that is a broken heart, a contrite spirit, a humble man. And then so David then does constantly experience uh, God's faithfulness. David, we might say, lived a life of repentance and um, which is really should be the, the habit of the Christian. So when we talk about the, the mercies of God, the patience of God, uh, I think we can fail to recognize that from, from the time that they went into the land, okay, in Joshua, to the time that Israel was deported and Judah was exiled is about a thousand years. That's a lot of patience. So God is merciful. Okay, his mercies are new every morning. He is patient. He says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Now before, he, he lightly mentions sins, and there it may not have been any kind of grave sin. But here he says that his iniquity is great. His iniquity is great. I believe that the person who actually believes that their iniquity is great is the one who has a sense of God's holiness, just as David did. Uh, those people that think that their sin is no big deal, 
it's really because they've never had a true encounter with God. And uh, it's important to experience God in his holiness. And the person who believes that God will forgive great iniquity, he's the one that has experienced God's grace, which is greater than all of our sin. You know, Romans chapter 5, when you study that, you notice that uh, Paul uh, says much more than, I think, five or six times. And uh, so it's called the much more chapter of the Bible. But in terms of God's grace being greater than sin, Paul says, for where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now, there's a man that can speak from experience. Because I think if you, if, if you could put David's sins on a scale, and you put Paul's on a scale, I think Paul's, when he was Saul, far outweighs David's significantly. I mean, murder seems to be pretty high on the list. And, uh, you know, torturing people until they blaspheme the name of Christ, um, all that stuff. So Paul, of all people, could say, where sin abounded in my own life, God's grace abounded much, much more. I know it by experience. And David here in the text is confident that God will pardon him, but it's purely because of who God is. It has nothing to do with any um, virtue within David himself, nothing that he has done. He says, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. I do not know what the secret of the Lord is. And maybe that's a confession that I don't fear the Lord enough, because he says that those who fear the Lord, that they will know the secret of the Lord. I'm not sure what he means by secret in the text, Uh, But maybe it's a commentary about me. Uh, Maybe you know the secret of the Lord. Uh, I don't know what he's talking about. But he says that the the person that fears the Lord is the same one who is humble and he strives to keep his covenant. And here David isn't presenting three different categories of God's people. He's just saying this is how God's people should be. The humble, those who fear him, those who seek him. And when people walk in fear, in humility... He says they get to enjoy the promises of God. These are the ones who get to be instructed by the Lord. He says they get to prosper. He even causes their descendants to prosper. So those who fear the Lord uh, have a tendency to influence the next generation. Okay? And they get to experience this, this intimacy with God that others are, are left out on. He says, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Third reference to sin. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. This is the first time in in the entire psalm that David has mentioned Israel. Every other time it was my troubles, my sorrows, my enemies, my difficulty. But now he brings Israel into it, which I believe is, is noble on David's part. Because as the king goes, so goes the nation, right? As the king goes, so goes the nation. So David is appealing to God's mercy, not only for his own deliverance, but for the sake of the people that he loves. Because if he goes down, the nation goes with it. 
Okay, so he's, he's appealing to God for them as well. Yeah. We actually see this very thing happen in the narrative of 2 Samuel 15. You remember, Absalom has rallied his forces and he's, he's marching toward Jerusalem. He's marching toward Jerusalem. And if David had remained in Jerusalem, all of the city would have got, would have got caught in the crossfire. So what does David do? He's like, Absalom wants me. So David leaves the city so that he can take the fight elsewhere, so that he can spare the women and children of the city. I think that is just a great thing about a king. He takes his men and he draws the battle away from the people. I think it actually stands out as one of David's most noble achievements. I think it's noble when he spares Saul's life. I think it's noble when he spares uh, the Benjamite who was cursing him and kicking rocks on him. Uh, I think there's many noble things that David did. But I think that when he spares the multitudes, I think it's just a, a beautiful picture of a good king. I think it's why Jesus referred to David as the great king. And I think it's why all of the kings of Judah were compared to David, who had a heart after God's own heart. So anyway, I think that just the overarching theme of the psalm is, Lord, when I'm in a difficult way, whatever it may be, whether it's relationships, whether it's cultural pressure, marital whatever. David teaches us not to react, but to wait on the Lord, to seek his face and say, Lord, show me. Another place David says, show me wonderful things in your word. Lord, lead me by the way that is right so that when I do act, I can honor, I can honor. Amen. All right. Well, that is the final psalm because we were going to split it up, uh, 25 psalms, and then we were going to go to Isaiah. So next uh, Thursday, I will give the introduction to the book of Isaiah. Next Thursday is prayer night. I'm glad I have Mark. So that'll give me two weeks to prepare for the introduction to Isaiah. We will take the entire evening to do the introduction to Isaiah, okay? And then we're not going to go verse by verse through all of Isaiah. I'm going to do it in a, I'm going to do it in an in-depth survey style. Uh, there will be some, uh, chapters or sections that we do uh, as, um, as an exposition. I'll teach verse by verse through many chapters, but some of them, uh, especially with the history of Israel, uh, we're gonna go, we might go through five and six chapters in a night. And, uh, so, but I'm not going to take three years in Isaiah, I promise. I'll try to be done by Christmas. How's that? And then we'll do Psalm 26 through 50. What, what did you say? These snarky people. That'll, that'll be your Christmas gift is the completion of Isaiah. Go ahead and stand up and I'll let you people go home.